0: following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This morning, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We have two questions this morning reading a text like that. The first is, what if this is the first Sunday of Advent, what is Advent? And the second question is, what does that text have to do with Advent? I'll start with the first question first. We want to make sure we're not using insider language when we talk about Advent. Advent is a word that means coming. And when Christians refer to Advent, We are referring to the coming, specifically, of Christ. So Advent is a season in which we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of Christ. But lest you think that Advent is only about the first coming of Christ, so that Advent is really about four weeks of celebrating Christmas, again and again and again and again. It's not. In Advent, we find ourselves in the same position as the Israelites longing for the coming of the Messiah. They didn't know there was going to be two comings. And so as they waited, as they prayed, as they longed for His coming, So we too find ourselves in this place. Christ has come, but Christ will come again. And in the middle of this, there is the longing, there is the grieving, there is the pain of having an experience that doesn't meet our expectations. There is a gap between where we are and where we thought we would be. There's a gap between who we are and who we thought we would be. And in the midst of this gap, this longing, this grieving, this lamenting, there is the longing. There is the hope. There is the cry, Come. Lord Jesus. That's what Advent is. You see, it is the lamenting of Advent that keeps the celebrating of Christmas from being pretending. As if everything's fine. As if everything is somehow the way it should be. What do you do with the disappointments What do you do with the crushing grief? Just pretend? Advent keeps us from being plastic. Keeps us from pretending. And this is the focus that we need today. We need for those walking in darkness, we need the great light to shine on us again. And so we look at this passage. The very structure of our passage in Advent, Acts 1, 1 through 11, causes us to focus here. Because verses 1 to 3 are all about the first coming of Christ. The first book which I wrote, which was all about what Jesus began to do and teach, And this passage will end with the second coming of Christ, verses 9 through 11. This is where we're at in Advent. We are smashed between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And in the middle of this, verses 4 through 8, you have the commission of Christ, which answers the question why are we still here? What are we waiting for? What are we supposed to be doing? Now, we have seen that we will not accomplish this commission in verses 4 through 8 without the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so here these disciples come now. The risen Christ has appeared to them many times. He has proven that He's alive. He has taught them many things about the kingdom of God. He has taught them about the spirit of God. And now in this climactic last appearance, they have a question for him. And that's what we're looking at today. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So in Advent, here's what we're doing, these four weeks. In verse 6, we're looking at the question of the kingdom. In verse 7, we're looking at the timing of the kingdom. In, verses, in verse 8, we're looking at the commission from the king. And verses 9 to 11, we're looking at the second coming of the king, the return of the king. And in each one, we're asking the question, what does it have to do with Advent? Advent and the question of the kingdom. Advent and the timing of the kingdom. Advent and the commission of the king. Advent and the return of the king. We're connecting these things. So when we come to this question, what does this question have to do with Advent? Well, much much in every way. Before we answer that, let's give all of these questions and all of these longings to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are in this moment an open book to you. All of our fears, all of our hurts, all of our disappointments, all of our perplexity, all of our anger, everything that we feel, everything that we think, open book to you. And oh God, how we want you to speak into that darkness. How we long for you to lift up the light of your countenance now through your word, by your spirit that Christ may be shown that Christ may be lifted up, that our hearts would be drawn to Him. And, O God, that these longings and this perplexity would be answered by Your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way that most people read verse 6 is to assume that the disciples just don't get it. That somehow Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. And now the disciples ask a question that just comes out of nowhere. It just doesn't relate to anything that he's been talking about. Most people read verse 6 as if it's just further evidence that the disciples are out of touch. It would be like me saying to you, I'm going to go to Domino's Pizza. Can I get anything for you? And you say to me, like a good Christian hedonist, I would like a Happy Meal. Just assume that's what Christian hedonists would want to eat. Happy Meal. And I say to you, wait a minute. Don't you realize that Domino's pizza is not McDonald's? That you can't get Happy Meals at at Domino's? Don't you understand the way that this works? That's the way a lot of people read verse 6 that the disciples just somehow ask a question that has nothing to do with what he's just been saying. But actually, this question is very natural from what Jesus has been saying. Because he's been talking about the kingdom of God and the spirit of God, verse 3 and verses 4 and 5, any Jew would hear the kingdom of God and the spirit of God coming and they would be reading the Old Testament and say, is, is therefore the time now that you're going to rule that the end is going to come? Because in the Old Testament, when the Spirit comes in the latter days, that's when there's going to be restoration. That's when there's going to be the reign of God restored. That's when all of their hopes and dreams are going to be fulfilled. In the latter days, God's presence is going to come in an unprecedented way. And they think, I understand what you're talking about. is it all going to come now? When actually, what happens here in this text is that the disciples have to bring all of their perplexity to Jesus in the form of a question. And Jesus is going to have to correct it. Because it's true. These longings... These desires that they have, this perplexity that they now think this is going to be it. Sometimes you say there's no such thing as a bad question. When in fact, this is a very bad question. Calvin says there are, there, there are as many errors in this question as words. And this is what Jesus is going to do. This is the main point of this verse. The disciples have a very narrow understanding of the kingdom. And therefore, expectations that are off. And what Jesus has to do mercifully is come and correct, purify, and expand their expectations beyond what they currently know. Don't you just find he has to do that with us all the time? This is what Jesus does. The disciples bring their question, and Jesus has to take out his red pen and say, not quite, not quite, not quite. In fact, in the outline, you can see there are three places that Jesus' red pen comes out. And he says, I need to correct, first, this verb, restore. Second, I need to correct this noun, Israel. And third, I need to correct this adverb, at this time. He needs to correct restore. He needs to correct Israel. He needs to correct at this time. So number one. First, he corrects the verb restore. In this question, are you going to restore the kingdom? So at the heart of the question is this action, restoration. Now, what do the disciples understand about restored? Restored to what? Restored to what it once was. For any Israelite, thinking about the kingdom and talking about restoring it, what are they thinking of? They're thinking of the monarchy. They're thinking of the days when David and Solomon ruled from shore to shore. Complete kingdom. Are you going to set it up like that again? What these disciples think of is seemingly what Luke promised, what the Gospel of Luke promised when Jesus comes, Luke one thirty two, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. You're going to be on the throne, Right? of your father David it's going to be a kingdom like that right just one that never ends when they think of the restoration they're thinking of a territorial kingdom a thing that you can see on the map like you could with David and Solomon they they're looking at this like we look at Psalm 72 And the hope of the Messiah, 72 verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And how will the people respond to this king? May desert tribes bow down before him, his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Are you going to restore right now Jesus? Are Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod and all of the Romans going to lift the dust now? Fall under your feet? doesn't just hinge here on the king and restoring the monarchy. They understand that if the king does this, then that is going to impact the people that belong to him. That's the second part of the question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You the king everyone bowing before you, and now this monarchy is going to be restored to Israel. The noun Israel here shows that the disciples were expecting not just a territorial kingdom, but a national kingdom. This was a Jewish renewal movement, they thought. This is going to be for the nation of Israel and all the nations will be underneath them. Finally, Israel will be the top and all the other nations will be the tail instead of the way that it's been. Are you going to do that? Restore it to Israel? They understand that when the Messiah is here and He sends the Spirit that that reign is going to be restored. The nation will be restored from its ruins, returned to national independence in which they are slaves of no one and rulers over everyone. That is what they are expecting. And let's remember, these very same disciples, they thought they understood that if you are going to reign... In Jerusalem, then we want to know who can be at your right and at your left. When the government is on your shoulders, we're going to be sitting pretty with you. We're going to have the top government jobs. This is going to involve us. When when you are restored to your reign, then suddenly we will be lifted up too. And the question that they're really asking, not just about restoration, not just about Israel, but the adverb, you can hear it, is it now? Will the kingdom at this time be restored to Israel? Is it all going to happen now? All of it in accord with our expectations, will it be now. Remember, they've been on a roller coaster of emotions with just shattered expectations. He was not the king that they were expecting. All along, expecting a, a political ruler, one who was going to destroy the Romans, rather than having their expectations met. The cross has simply devastated them. They're walking around with disillusionment. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But now, He's resurrected. Now, He's talking about the kingdom. And now these hopes... That were shattered are now resurrected as well. And they think this is what's going to happen. What what categories might they be working with? The throne of your father David. Do you remember what happened with David? How he was not, when he was anointed king by Samuel, he didn't immediately become king. In fact, he was a king kind of in the waiting with a small band of mighty men following him, waiting for the time when he would be revealed as the true king. And in 1 Samuel, you don't see it at all until 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 3, he's finally declared to be the king, but, but of Judah, Ishbosheth. Is the king of Israel declared to be? And there's got to be even more bloodshed and civil war until 2 Samuel 5, and he's finally installed as the ruler over all of Israel. I'm sure they're thinking the same thing of Jesus. Yes. All of Israel has not responded to Him. He's been like a king in waiting like David. And the disciples are like David's mighty men waiting in the wings with Him. And now surely this is the time. He's risen. How can anyone doubt that He's the king? All of Israel is going to come to Him. And now all of our kingdom expectations are going to come to pass. Right Jesus had to painfully correct these misplaced expectations. And he had to constantly do it all throughout his ministry. He had to constantly correct. Remember the time that he says, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it the only way that you're going to save your life, you can't save it yourself. You've got to actually lose it by giving it to me, and I will save it. He had to correct that. And then in this very context where they're saying, who's going to have the top government jobs? He has to say, not rebuke the idea of being great as they're arguing over who's the greatest. He has to correct it by transforming it. He said, don't think greatness means that there are going to be people serving you. Rather, the greatest among you will be the one who serves everyone. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He had to correct and correct, and now what has to happen? Boy, this is what Advent is all about, isn't it? They have to bring to Him their shattered dreams about the kingdom. And the only way that they're going to live is if they first let them die. They have to first, in order to understand the kingdom, They have to have their ideas of the kingdom first die. Let Jesus get out the red pen and say, not this, not that, not quite. This is wrong. And in the same way, if you're truly going to celebrate with hope and longing, the coming of Christ, and celebrate the first coming, long for the second coming. We have to bring Jesus our shattered dreams. Identify the gap between what we expect and what we experience what we thought it would be like, and what it is like. And the distance between what we expect and what we experience is called disappointment. You have to bring, Advent says, your, your shattered dreams, your hopes that are dashed, your bitter disappointments, You have to bring them all to Jesus and and let Him correct them. Let Him transform them. I don't know what it's like for you today, but I have some guesses. Some of you are single and you thought you'd be married by now. Some of you are childless and you thought you would have children by now. Some of you are lonely and you thought you'd have a greater support of friends by now. Some of you thought you'd have a better job than you do by now, or some of you thought, I didn't expect I would lose my job. I didn't expect that a pandemic would bring a pink slip. And in some ways, Christianity makes these things harder, not easier, right? If you know there is a God who's in control, and we know him as Father, and he's all-powerful and all-loving, then suddenly there's a greater question. If you love me, why am I single? If you love me, why am I childless? If you love me, why do I have no job? If you're in control and you love me, why do I have a hard marriage? or a failed marriage, or no marriage at all. Nobody expects the Christian dream will involve no job, no children, no spouse. We don't expect to have children that if we do have children that they're going to challenge us and some of them reject us. We don't expect that as we raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord that some of them are going to be wayward. And maybe don't even call for the holidays. And how do you answer the question about why your loved one died? When they did? How they did? How are we supposed to answer the question, why do some parents have to bury their children? Or why this year does my beloved uncle die by having a tractor roll on him? Why for some of you are the people that God put in your life to love you most, why did they hurt you most? Why is there abuse? Why are there pandemics? Why is there childlessness, joblessness, poverty? Children who are abused, children who die. What do we do? Three things. Three things. Number one, you have to start by bringing your broken dreams to Jesus. Where else will you go? And there, in his presence, lament them. Wherever there is a gap, Grieve the gap with him. Wherever there's a moment of pain, mourn the moment with him. Don't be plastic. Don't be fake. Don't pretend everything's fine while there is an ache in your soul. Bring it to him. Somebody once said, complaining about God is a sin, but complaining to God is a psalm. So bring it to him. He wants it. How do we know? How do we know that he wants our Sadness, our brokenness. Why can we do it in his presence without him saying, don't bring that to me? Second, as you bring your broken dreams to Jesus, look at your suffering Savior. I've said it so many times. We don't start by looking to the sovereign Savior, though He is. I'm telling you, don't start with something abstract, like He's in control. Start with something specific, like He suffered for you. I read about a pastor this week that had his son... Be torn apart in a farm accident by an auger. And he had to do the funeral. Where would you start? He started not with the sovereignty of God in the abstract, but the suffering of God. God the Father knows what it's like to have His Son be torn apart. Not in some seemingly cosmic accident, but in the greatest, most purposeful, intentional act to save sinners. While you're marveling and wondering at why that thing happened, also spend time marveling and wondering, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? As we think about all kinds of reasons why God should spare His Son, our sin, Every sin of ours is a reason why He should not spare His Son. But indeed, He gave Him over for us all because of our sins. And therefore, as we have the disillusionment of suffering, we bring it to God and know that We can be in his presence because that's why he died to bring us into his presence. And in his presence, we know he is safe. He understands our suffering, he doesn't just know about it theoretically, but experientially. And the Bible says, that he's near to all those who are crushed in spirit. Where should you go? Where should you bring your disappointments, your hurt? Don't be like the babies in the orphanage who learn to rock themselves to sleep. Because no one's there. Come to your Father. Who knows? He knows you. He knows your hurts. He knows your disappointments. And he's not just the God of the red pen. But of the crimson flow. That washes away all of our faults so we can come to him with all of our hurts and even all of our doubts. And third, so lament the loss, look to the suffering Savior and then lean. Lean on the everlasting arms if you understand in Advent the revelation of who this Jesus is, you will understand He's not just high and exalted, but as Emmanuel, He is near. He is gentle. He is lowly, which means you don't have to climb up to Him. You can collapse down to Him. He will catch you. He will hold you. He will not let you go. I want to close this way. I think Advent can be clarified with a word picture from history. A flight, Eastern Airlines Flight 401. This flight took place December 29th, 1972. This flight departed from New York. It's was going to land in Miami. At 11.32 p.m., the captain attempted to lower the landing gear. There's a light on the instrument panel that's supposed to blink green, turn green, to confirm that the landing gear is extended and locked. And the light didn't turn green. So the captain decided to call the air traffic control tower and tell them they needed to circle until they could get confirmation on the landing gear. So the plane climbed back up to 2,000 feet. Captain ordered the first officer to look into this captain turned the autopilot on. They tried to fix the problem. The cockpit crew, beginning with the first officer and the plane's engineer, and then even the captain tried to take the replacement bulb, $12, two square inch bulb. Tried to put it in, slide it in, and it wouldn't. Kept jamming And at some point, the captain, while trying to put the bulb in, bumped the control wheel, which disconnected the autopilot. And that accidental bump caused the nose of the plane to tilt down a, a few degrees until it was descending at a rate of 200 feet per minute. Suddenly there was a chime of an alarm alerting them to a 250 foot drop but by this time they didn't hear it. The first officer, the second officer and the captain all of them, the whole cockpit crew was preoccupied with replacing the bow. At 11:42, 10 minutes after announcing their initial descent, the first officer said, "We did something to the altitude. The captain said, What? The first officer said, We're still at 2,000 feet, right? The captain shouted, Hey, what's happening here? Those were the last recorded words. A plane crashed into the Florida Everglades. The entire cockpit crew, pilots, flight engineer, all died. 101 fatalities. 75 survivors because of a preoccupation with a $12 bulb. We could have manually put it down, manually checked. What does this have to do with Advent? Advent calls our attention away from all the blinking. Warning lights and says, pay attention to the main thing, one thing you should be preoccupied with. I'm not in any way saying that the warning lights are unimportant. I'm simply saying there is a distinction we should make between the important and the most important. Painful things and the main thing. There's only one thing that will cause us to crash eternally, and that is if we lose sight of our Savior. And Advent says, Look, turn away. From the warning lights, and behold the wondrous mystery. All the lights flashing, and and, and some of them just don't even seem to fit, like they're, they're just jammed. And we wonder, why doesn't this fit? Why doesn't this work? And the answer is, we don't know. I don't know why you're still childless. I don't know why you're still single. I don't know why you lost your job or have the job you have. I don't know why loved ones... Die. I don't know why parents sometimes have to bury their children. I don't know why a tractor rolled over on my uncle. I don't know why I'm not the dad that I want to be or the husband that I want to be or the pastor that I want to be. I don't know why sanctification is so slow. But Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says that the revealed things belong to us the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. There are things we don't know and we can't know. But the call is to know the things we can and must know. Here is what I know. I know that Christ has come. I know that Christ has died. I know that Christ is risen. I know that Christ will come again. And I know that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor any disappointment in all this world can separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know why we're going through all that we're going through now but I know who reigns I know who's risen I know who's promised to not leave us as orphans I know that we don't have to rock ourselves and I know not just what I believe I know whom I have believed and he is able to keep that which we commit to him unto that day I know that he is the one who will complete what he started I know I know that he will not forsake any of his children. I know that he will hold us fast. I know that we will be with him forever. I know that he is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would behold. the wondrous mystery. That we will behold the Lord of life slain by death but no grave could ever hold him. Praise the Lord. He is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power, resurrected as we will be when he comes. Lord, we know that though this world has so many disappointments, we know the world to come is one in which disappointment is impossible because no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's never entered into the mind of believers to understand what God has prepared for those who love Him. So help us, Lord. Look away and behold the wondrous mystery and celebrate what, in fact, we know and cannot lose. In Jesus' name, Amen. 55415. Five, Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ.